Welcome to Chronically of Narnia. To, on today's podcast, we're going to be discussing the horse and his boy once again. Uh, I know. We'll be done with it soon. Um, In and fact, after this episode. What? This is it. This is it. Yeah. Finally? Finally. Finally. Hmm. And then we can start Prince Caspian. Exciting. Woo-hoo. I know nothing about <laughs> it, so I can't say anything. Okay. Um, and so today we are going to be discussing the horse and his boy from start to finish, and we have a special guest today. So, as usual, I am here. I am Queen Susan, the Barbarian Queen, also known as Kristen. This is my co-host. Like my father before me, I am a sower of lies, and he who waits behind the throne. I am Tumnus, the keeper of secrets. <laughs> Also known as Chris. <laughs> and today we have a special guest with us. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, hello. My name is Laraline, the diva of Mormon. <laughs> ah. Also, also known as Rachel. <laughs> hello, Rachel. Thank you for joining us. So, Rachel, is this your first time doing a podcast? This is my first time doing a podcast. I'm super excited, though. Really well, excited. We don't know what we're doing, so. <laughs> Well, that that makes three of us because I'm there we go. quite you know, a- quite ADD. This is this is the earliest we've ever recorded an episode of this podcast, I believe. That's probably true. Uh, uh, so earliest in the morning, and Kristen is just getting over like a head cold. I currently have one, so we are not on top of her game today, or at least I'm not. But you got your pumpkin spice latte. I got my PSL from uh, from Starbucks. Oh, that's great. I've got I've got my black tea here, so I'm having some English breakfast with you. Ooh, excellent choice. Star- Starbucks, the perfect place for your morning coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Not sponsored, but Starbucks if you're listening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um so Rachel, first of all, I want to say thank you so much for taking time out of your quarantined life to listen to or read The Horse and His Boy for us. Um but I'd like to know, have you read the Chronicles of Narnia? What's your experience with this? Did you grow up with this? Is this the first time? Chris has never read them before. So mm-hmm. this is all the first time for him. And I've read them a couple times. Uh, yeah. So I grew up with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, bef- you know, not not the movie. I think in school I read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And then there was a time when um, I, I have um, – there's, there's five – siblings in my family and four of us two boys and two girls lived with my mom uh for a season and she every night before we went to bed would read the lion the witch and the wardrobe to us putting our names in place of the characters so i was susan yeah my sister was lucy and yeah and so forth so um that was there's some good memories with that and then the movie came out and i now i think associate more of the movie with the story because i've seen that more recently than i read that book i had read the horse and his boy completely separately like uh, as a child but it had been a long time and the other books i haven't read i haven't seen any of the other movies so i've I have a, no idea most of the story, but it was very okay. uh, nostalgic rereading The Horse and His Boy. 
So, interesting. You've read The Horse and His Boy and Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but mm-hmm. none of the others? None of the others. Okay. And I think I I think I had thought that The Horse and His Boy was, like, the first one. I I don't I don't know there's why a couple I chose of... that one. <laughs> well, there's a couple of different reading orders, so we discussed uh, a few times in the podcast, but um, within the the order that the books were published in was uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Prince Caspian, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Um, so basically the stories that all involve the Pevensey kids, the four kids, mm-hmm. um, or their family members, and then um, the Silver Chair. So those four were the first four that were written. But chronologically, story-wise, this takes place, The Horse and His Boy takes place during the reign of uh, Peter, Lucy, Susan, and Edmund in Narnia. And so it actually takes place between, like, in in the middle of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe before they go home from Narnia at the end of it. So uh, in the other order, as far as chronologically, there's The Magician's Nephew, which is like a prequel, and then The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and then The Horse and His Boy. Gotcha. So in one order, if you started with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, this would be considered the next book, okay. which is actually the order that we've been reading them in. Oh, cool. So for nice. the for the well, sake of the cool. podcast, you, you know were I, in the right order. <laughs> I just I just realized, I think I've read The Magician's Nephew, too. Is that a part of The the, the yeah. Chronicle? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't remember anything about it, but I, I do remember, I, I'm pretty sure I read it. It's been a long time since childhood, you guys. <laughs> then a minute. Um, that is interesting, though, because uh, I believe uh, one of our other guests, Steve, also said this is the first book in the series he read. Yes. So This was, he, as a child, one of his teachers read this book to the class. Oh, God. And it. that was his first introduction to Narnia. Um, I think which it's, I a found... good, it's a good introduction because it, yeah. I like no, that it starts with that world as opposed to our world. Yes. And of all of the books, it's the only one that has a non-Earth child as the main character. Hmm. Like, not someone who came into Narnia, but someone actually from that world. Those oh, interesting. So. <laughs> I did make a point a few episodes ago, I believe, uh, where I, I said that. I think this should have been introduced as the first book in the series. Uh, just because of the way that Aslan is introduced in this book. Mm. And I feel like it's the best way that he's been kind of brought into the fold in, the, in any of the books we've read so far. But anyway. So within the series, um, like w- with your experience, you know um, a- Aslan's Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and What? Yeah, I know. I know, it's crazy. <laughs> Um, you can't start spraying this stuff on me this early in the morning, Preston. <laughs> um, but did you have anything specific that you wanted to touch on? Uh, anything about your reading experience with this uh, as a child versus now? Um, anything that kind of sprang to mind reading it now versus comparing it to your experience as a child? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think... It's been such a long time. I don't have specific memories of, like, what I thought about certain situations in the book other than, you know, it's just an adventure book. I wasn't thinking about it in any, like, theological parallels. Um, But 
definitely as an adult, I'm like, I'm not just looking at the story. I'm analyzing a little bit, as, especially knowing that it's authored by C.S. Lewis. Um, kind of looking for parallels, even if it's just to make fun of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I think it was interesting. I, I was do, uh, listening to the audiobook of it and trying to get things done because I'm too ADD to just sit still. Um, and the, this, the little section where he encounters Aslan for the first time and Aslan reveals like, oh, I've been with you in these moments and um, I was the, the lion that was chasing you. Um, yeah. I actually, it's it was interesting as someone who's quite cynical and like, in a completely different space spiritually um i actually was like uh very moved and tearful it was very interesting to i'm like why am i having this response i don't even think about um i don't even think about god in the same way anymore but um it was it was actually a really sweet moment that i still find that moving and that concept moving um it was quickly that quickly uh, the feeling quickly passed once he <laughs> talked to Erebus. <laughs> it was like, karma. <laughs> yeah, a little um, bit. <laughs> but yeah, I think it was, it was very interesting to not only analyze, but um, see some of the emotions that came with those um, old narratives and old stories that are still, I, I guess, deeply... Um, spiritually and emotionally rooted in me from my experiences in Christianity. <laughs> yeah, what do I follow that with? Um, go, go ahead. I got, I got something going on. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, um, is that too emotional? Too no, early? no, 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 no. <laughs> it's, you brought it's, you brought a four to the party, guys. I'm sorry. Well, it's nice that you did have a positive reaction to that because for us, it was a very. Um, we have a running joke throughout the podcast, like, hey, you know Aslan's Jesus, right? And so, wait, what? You mean what? Um, it's a lame joke. Yeah, it is. But <laughs> because in every book, as Aslan is introduced, it is in The Magician's Nephew, he is introduced as literally the voice of creation singing Narnia into existence as God the creator. And very much just like this word spoken out, this voice singing. And then in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, everyone's talking about, oh, Aslan's coming, Aslan's coming, Aslan's here, Aslan. Oh, and then we finally meet Aslan, and he's just like, yo, and then dies, and then raises again. And it's like three chapters that Aslan's actually in the book. Mm -hmm. And then in this book, when we finally actually talk to Aslan, we have this very direct... Um, myself 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 introduction of himself as like god the father god the son god the holy spirit and this kind of very direct uh analogy to god as presented in christian tradition in in the bible and this kind of trinitarian idea and for us it was something where we were just like oh yeah that's let's jesus but it's actually nice to see, you know, like for me, when I read these books for the first time, I was 14 or 15. And so there was nothing, you know, you said reading them as a child, this 
this idea of like this spiritual analogy kind of was lost on you. It was an adventure story. But for me reading it more in my high school years for the first time, I was just like, oh yeah, this is an, an, an analogy and it's an allegory and it's Jesus, obviously. And he's, oh yeah, and he's being the Holy Spirit. So like, I never got that to just enjoy this as an adventure story. Um, mm. And so... I'm sorry. It's, it's, <laughs> it's quite a good adventure story. It's yeah. fun. I mean, like, and we've talked a lot about how it's this coming of age story and we've got all of this adventure going on for Shasta and just like all of this world building and stuff. So there's a lot in there that could just be enjoyed. But for me, as someone who was reading it a little bit older than the target audience, I was already just like tearing it apart in a in a theology and an analysis way. So it's all, like... I'm glad that you were able to enjoy it and engage with even the spiritual aspects of it that kind of put me off mm -hmm. uh, in a positive way for you up yeah, until it, we got to Erebus. I mean, I, yeah, I, I think intellectually I, I was kind of in the same place as you guys where I, I wanted to hate it and part, parts of me um, did feel... Uh, somewhat repulsed I don't know like I think just on an intellectual level feeling um I don't know I think sometimes the metaphors and allegories can be very manipulative um especially in literature and music um music in particular that's a whole other thing but um it's this the same concept but I I think it was a pleasant pleasantly surprising experience to have an emotional reaction to that because I I think I can and we can still look at these um beautiful spiritual moving uh things I, I don't think I'm articulating well it's early too for me guys um <laughs> uh, but yeah that there's and there's a reason why I think it, it it was moving to me still. And you guys know a little bit more of my story. And we've all kind of talked in other forums about our spiritual journeys. But, um, you know, I, I do still have some kind of faith in the divine, whether that presents as Jesus or otherwise. And the idea that there is some kind of um, continuous divine factor moving at different points in our life kind of directing us whatever that looks like or whatever reason in the midst of the chaos like I found the the concept of purpose in that very comforting um and uh, yeah I I don't know it I don't know if it was necessarily because of like the echoes of my religious past or um spiritual past or if it's more of where I'm at now, that I, I found it to be still a beautiful metaphor, even if it's not the Judeo-Christian metaphor, if that makes sense. Yeah, I have found myself of two minds about these books uh, a lot because I love allegory. I'm one of those weirdos who, like, <clears throat> loves fables and parables and allegory, and, like, uh, I think a lot of them are beautiful. And I love maybe little lowercase l c.s lewis um it's like i was really really in him in college he was my favorite theologian like he's inspired like a lot of my thought and the way i've approached christianity nerd <laughs> yeah <laughs> no my favorite theologian is like the best known one i'm such yes, a dork i have a favorite theologian <laughs> at least it's not Kierkegaard. okay um, true. 
Um, but yeah, I I used to really love C.S. Lewis, and I still appreciate him a lot. Uh, these books, though, the allegory is terrible <laughs> uh, for the most part. Like I've I've made this point in a lot of episodes, but more to the point. Um, and this is something that I've kind of arrived at after the last episode we had with Steve, uh, when we had a conversation with him about the fact that the theology that Lewis presents in his nonfiction work and the theology that he presents in these books is vastly different. Mm. And so I've kind of come to my own personal idea that maybe Lewis isn't trying to like, you know, to use a, a bad word, indoctrinate children or like present them with an allegory that's going to manipulate them. But maybe mm-hmm. he's just trying to write something that is uh, inspiring curiosity. Oh, and yeah. And he's just trying to present something to be like, hey, if you want to ask questions about this, you can get more into it. And it's not necessarily what he believes, but, you know, he, he wants to open the door to kids who may not have opened themselves. So that's that's my trying to redeem him a little bit. Um, so... Yeah, I like that insight. And I honestly, I don't think I've read any works of C.S. Lewis outside of these, although I clearly know how well-respected and influential he is. Um, So, yeah, I appreciate that insight because I I wouldn't even know what his exact theological stances are. Sometimes he doesn't either, and that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's that's refreshing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I think that something that frustrated me in this work is, and it's something that, like, any time that we talk about theology, we always end up, especially when it comes from these books, it always comes down to this idea of, like, the problem of evil or, like, the problem of pain, which mm-hmm. is actually, for the problem of pain is a title of one of C.S. Lewis's theology books that he wrote. Mm-hmm. But, um this kind of problem of evil or why does evil exist or why does suffering exist or why does pain exist? These questions come out a lot in our discussion of these books, which is something that I get kind of worn out on because the way that C.S. Lewis handles it in this is where he's just like, oh no, I was there through all of it. And it's like, well, did you cause this pain and suffering? Because obviously like for Erebus, you directly caused this pain and suffering in her life but with the scratches specifically, but like, you know, oh, were you just there to redeem the pain and suffering that happened? Or it's kind of handled in a way where it almost feels like Aslan caused some of these things to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And like Aslan used fear to drive Shasta and Erebus together. And these kind of representations of like a divine that I don't like. Mm-hmm. And it and it really, you know, we, we come back to this topic of the problem of suffering and the problem of pain all the time um, through these books just because it keeps coming up in them. But I, for me, that's part of what put me off on, on, like, the way that Aslan is handled in these books. I don't know. I like the whimsy of this book and the way that Aslan is presented is completely different than any of the other books where he's very much more this background figure and this kind of like comforter, more of like a Holy Spirit image in the traditional Christian like um, idea. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it also almost feels like he's there, you know, 
not as a redeemer of suffering, but a causer to some extent. And it's a little, you know, I, I think that it's handled in a way that's a little bordering on the line of. Yeah, there was some like the word that was coming to my mind was like, ooh, I don't like the God as the puppeteer kind mm. of. Uh, yeah, I, I wasn't I wasn't super down with that. Or I, I guess um, just feeling discomfort, especially when it was revealed uh, to Shasta finally like all of the different moments and then as it continued later on um, with with Erebus and um, with Rabidash <laughs> you know I'm like mm, I don't I don't like this concept of, of God as the, the puppeteer yeah that's something we uh, got into a little bit on our uh, last episode we did with Steve that we're releasing today just the concept of like fate and predestination in this whole book and we, we talked a little bit about whether or not uh, any of the characters in this book actually had a choice at some point. Or if this was just yeah. like, you know, as you said, like Aslan's puppet show. And we were trying really hard to think of moments where, like, characters had to make a decision or they could have done something else and we were struggling to get there. Uh-oh. Yeah. So, like, it was, <laughs> so, yeah, that was, uh, I don't know if that was by design or if, like, this is, like, just, you know, Lewis's terrible fiction writing. But... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, and nothing really matters. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I think that the the examples of times where people do use their free will are examples of times where they are chastised for failing at something or for doing something wrong. Like mm-hmm. Erebus used her free will to create an escape for herself that involved harming someone else, mm-hmm. and she gets punished for it physically. Um, Quinn attempts to use her free will to get everyone moving and going on and everyone falls asleep and she fails. She's getting chased by Aslan as a direct result of her failure to get everyone else moving and things like that. So I feel like the examples that I can come up with of like someone with exhibiting free will or, or choice, like are examples of things that people get punished for. <laughs> Well, and it, with those examples in particular, it's it's the the female embodied characters that are getting punished for trying really hard, especially if you know if you're looking at it as uh, the, the like Erebus's situation and and the escape was um, that one. I I feel like I had a physical reaction in in hearing that because it's still like this is a work of fiction and it's um supposed to more mirror a kind of historical landscape but but this is still a story of of women being trapped and um having to resort to extreme measures and harming even harming another individual to get out of it and then um being later well, I mean, punished even to begin with <laughs> like she's she was ready to kill herself. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. like, she was about to kill herself when Quinn stepped in and was just like, you know, like, let's run away to Narnia. This is your, your you have another choice here. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's interesting that later on the character representing God would punish her for resorting to extreme measures to um, avoid suicide and avoid the the fate that is being forced on her. Um, yeah, I think that that is a theological conundrum in and of itself. <laughs> Especially when we have moments where, like, Bree and Shasta are 
raiding as recalls and Shasta refers to it as stealing. Mm. Um, and so we have like all of these kind of moral gray areas where like it's even explicitly stated in the texts. It involved a lot of what Shasta referred to as stealing, but Brie called raiding. Mm-hmm. And like it's pointed out very like obviously in the text that there's this moral gray area where it's like, oh, it's stealing. No, it's raiding. Oh, it's stealing. <laughs> no, it's it's raiding. Like, even these two characters who are on this adventure to, together have this, like, kind of disagreement blatantly stated in the text. Like, oh, yeah, there's obviously some moral gray area here. And then at the same time, we have Erevis who runs away. And in doing so, it involves someone else getting punished for failing to do their job. Well, of course it's going to. She ran away. Like... She's someone's daughter. She's someone's betrothed. Like, she ran away. Someone was going to be responsible for that. She is nine years old, you know, or 12 years old, whatever the... And, like, that's another thing, like, textually, we don't have an age on these kids, but in in the timeline, as far as Narnian timeline accepted ages, these kids are under the age of 13, both of them, Shasta and Erebus. And so it's like, she's a child. Yes, she's a child bride, and all of that is a, it's a whole other topic that we can get into. But, like, someone was responsible if she ran away. Someone was going to be punished. Just the fact that she ran away was going to cause someone to get, probably to get beat, especially in that household. <laughs> like, yeah. So let's, uh, this is a topic I've wanted to jump into, uh, you know, on my third reread of this book, basically. Because, like, we reviewed the entire thing last episode and, like, going through all, like, the the summary sentences and whatnot, things jump out at me. Um, But something that we haven't really gotten into is this, uh, like, huge recurring theme of submission that takes place in this book. And how that's a part of, at least, I think, every single character arc in the story is uh, them having to submit themselves to someone or something. So is the man hmm. going to mansplain submission to two women here on the podcast? I, I, I'm just, I'm just saying, like, educate do you, me. Do you, do you disagree with me, Kristen? Because I, this comes up a lot. I think that it comes up a lot. I don't, I don't think that submission is nearly so much of a thing for Shasta. Uh, Except the conversation, like, he, he, he is bookended by submission. Like, the main character of the story, and this is what started me on this, is he starts out you know, being the son or being the slave uh, of the poor fisherman who, you know, this man that he calls father that beats him and like berates him and is, you know, in submission to. And he ends the story being in submission to this idea of the throne and the crown and, the law. and, and having, you know, conversation mm-hmm. with Loon and Loon being like, no, you can't get away from it. The, you know, you get what you get. You have to be under it. It is submitting to the people. And so like, it's him traversing this whole story and growing as a character from submitting to the wrong thing to the right thing. Hmm. And then we have Erebus, who is basically the same way, in that she, you know, is starting out the story as someone who's running away from submission to, like, the laws of the land and her people and the custom that she's supposed to take part in. And, you know, she goes through this whole thing and gets punished for that for some weird reason. And then ultimately... That's her story. That's her story, though. You mind your story. Yeah, Yeah, that's her story. And then, like, ultimately, and it's less clear with her at the ending, 
but she is basically submitting herself to be in the you know the court of King Lun as well and being in this new land where she doesn't know anybody other than Shasta. She doesn't have people. She doesn't have her station. She gets a station eventually. But, like, she's just like, all right, I'm a refugee. You know. But she really only lost her station for, like, a day and a half. <laughs> yeah. Like, from... From the from the moment like she pretended to be Lasarling's slave going into the palace until like Shasta shows up as Prince Kor at the Hermit like two days mm. she had to accept in two days that she was gonna be a nobody and once she accepted it Kor showed up and was like hey, you can come live in the palace with me yeah and then we have like you know I, I'm just saying I, I can see it in every character like we have the whole thing of like the Grand Vizier being like literally like bowing before the you know, the the Tisrock and, you know, submitting himself to abuse at the hands of his son. We have Rabidash submitting himself to the will of Tash and, like, his own impetuosity of youth, as he calls it. And, like, you know, it's a it's a thing here. But So do you think that that's an intention of C.S. Lewis? Or do you think he's intending to uh, impart a particular message with that, like, as an overarching theme of the, the book? I think the, even the title touches on that kind of reversal uh-huh. where we have the horse and his boy as opposed to a boy and his horse, uh, where it's this kind of reversal of authority, uh-huh. reversal of ownership, hmm. and and yeah. not necessarily submission directly, but it's very much this idea like when Bree says, you could just as much say, I stole him. You know, I'm a free Narnian horse. He was a slave. Like, you could just as much say that I stole him. He didn't. He's not a horse thief. I'm a slave thief. Mm. You know, or whatever. And I think that a lot of this idea of, like, submission, because you're talking about these kind of, Chris, you're talking about these kind of parallels of, like, subject to Calamine law as opposed to Arkenland law. Yeah. Very much kind of draws this direct moral line between saying Kellerman is evil uh-huh. and bad and wrong and any any resistance against that is a fight for the good yeah. and submission to the good. Yeah, desert people bad, white people good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, was think- I was thinking that. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, and like it's very much this kind of moral judgment there where it's like a crime against you know, an unknown Calamine person stealing from them is not a problem, but a crime against a slave in a Calamine household where she's going to get physically beaten for it is going to be deemed as a crime against another person. Hmm. But, like, a crime against a noble in Calamine isn't, but a crime against a slave in Calamine is. And so, I don't know. Like, I think... I think that there's a lot of ambiguity in it, like, to answer your question, Rachel. Like, I don't know. I think that there is, like, an, a, an intention in the writing to communicate something on this theme, but I think it gets muddied. I think that the lesson gets lost because the nuance of it is, like, the authority structures of Kellerman are what are bad, mm. but not people. And, like, harming someone who doesn't have will or, or choice, like a slave, is considered a crime that has to be punished. But harming someone who's just rich and has some lake house, like, just stealing some watermelons from them isn't a crime. Mm-hmm. 
Did it, so did it bother you guys at all um, that as a children's novel, the the war scene or the battle scene talked about people dying and being killed so flippantly? <laughs> I I think I think yeah a little bit um, compared to we talked about how the the battle scene in this is much better written. Mm-hmm. as far as like from the lion the witch and the wardrobe there's this battle scene and in the movie they play it out and it's this big deal in the movie but in the book you're told there's a battle happening but mm-hmm. you're with aslan susan and lucy at the at the witch's house reanimating the stone people mm. and then aslan and them all ride to the battle and the battle is one paragraph. Aslan jumped at the witch. And it doesn't even explicitly say that he killed the witch. Like, it's just like, and the battle was won. Mm-hmm. So the battle in this was handled much better as far as, like, the way that it was written. It was actually more detailed. They were We were given this third-person perspective via the hermit. However, like, yeah, no, I do agree with you. Like, this kind of idea of, like, death being flown or thrown around so flippantly in a children's book is a little bit questionable. But this is also a book that we've talked about serious, like, topics like suicide, like, you know, like, being yeah. beaten and things like that. And so I think that for the maturity level of the audience, if there's an audience reading this where the maturity level is at the point where it's like, yeah, we're going to read about a girl who tried to kill herself and a horse stepped in and saved her life. Like, okay, like that's a level of whimsy, I think, and a level of maturity that would be able to handle the way that the battle is written and the way that people are just like, oh, yeah, and he's dead and he's dead. And yeah, and and your tar cans down, Brie. Yeah, I don't know that that my like being off put with it has to so much to do is the audience not being able to handle the concept of death as much as this being um a book full of spiritual or theological allegory and metaphor um and there's these deeper messages of submission and predestination um like what the heck does it mean that people are so flippantly discarded and well, these are people that are part of the ruling structure in Kellerman, and Kellerman <laughs> is clearly bad. If you're in the ruling structure in Kellerman, you are evil, and you're part of the problem. Even yeah. even soldiers, Tash. you know. So- well, and I think that that's part of why it's like Rabidash and his two hundred horse. Like he handpicked these two hundred people who would be loyal to him, mm. and his impetuous desire to go kidnap and rape and like take back to him and to to force into submission queen susan Mm, yeah that's true so anyone who would go with him on that mission is clearly evil and worth (laughs) nothing and should die you know i don't know like and yeah like it is very flippant in the way that it handles human life at the royal and knight level but then, like, the way that it handles human life at the slave level is, like, oh, no, like, these are people who should be defended. And then at the same time, once Shasta becomes, you know, he ends up, oh, no, he was royal all along, and it was in his blood, and he's noble, and... He was predestined, Dad. He was predestined <laughs> yes. to be a great king and have a great son. Uh-huh. Yeah, I guess if it's... Uh... It's okay to have some holes in the narrative if it if it helps to serve the greater narrative. Yeah, but I mean, like, I still think that there is a lot of picking and choosing 
as far as this narrative goes, it's very much this kind of, it takes a lot of, I don't know where I'm going with this. Chutzpah. <laughs> it's very much trying to convey an, a very British sense of like people's value, I guess is oh, what I'm trying to say. Like it's taking this religious idea and this very British idea and putting them together and trying to come out with what makes a person valuable and what makes a person matter and what is Aslan looking for in a person and things like that. Like, well, it sounds like what... nobody really has much of a choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I need to actually read Mere Christianity. I, ha- I have it s- sitting up there for decoration, you know. <laughs> Maybe this is all Lewis's commentary on, like, you know, 1950s British society. Maybe it is. Uh-huh. Just him, you know, he, he wanted to be, you know, an American. I don't know. Well, I mean, and this was written post-World War II. Yeah. Um, and published in, I have it on one of my cards here, 1950. Oh, do you, you, do you take notes for yourself to be able to reference? I take notes for myself. Like, I, I call, like I'll write down an idea on mm-hmm. one side, and then if I feel like it'll actually come up in a podcast, then I write the information on the other side. So oh, I have a bunch nice. of these that just have, like, one word on a side and then the other side's blank. Ah. Uh, so, like, I had to write down all of the locations and the characters because I'm like, I'm never going to remember these names of people. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, Kristen, I, uh, you know, Steve had promised the listeners. Steve promised the listeners that I would have a, a feminist rant at some point. Woo! I'm, a, I'm ready. I was looking forward to the feminist rant. You know me. Uh-huh. <laughs> So we have. Con- so I have something prepared. Like yeah. as a man, I feel like I yeah. have uh, <laughs> Please tell us. necessary on this. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Go, go, go. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. Please continue. <laughs> I'll hand you the shovel. Keep going. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so, uh, Rachel, I'd love to know some of your thoughts uh, as having a childhood experience of reading this and, and, a, and one of the other Narnia books. And comparing it to now with the way that C.S. Lewis handles his female characters or his is. <clears throat> yeah, I yeah, mean, I'm sorry. I think <laughs> I'm like choked in the middle of that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think from what I can remember as a kid and I don't even remember like I can't even remember the, the entire story. Um, it, it felt many parts of it felt brand new to me. Um rereading it or re-listening to it um but I can remember as a kid really liking Shasta Shasta was my favorite character and I think that says a lot um and as I was listening this time through and I guess I kind of always do this I'm a creative type and I like writing stories and I've I've written many terrible books that will never see the light of day and screenplays and everything um (laughs) And in books and movies, as far as, like, fiction goes, um, I'm always looking for a certain type of female character to attach myself to. Like, oh, yeah, she that's that's my representation in this movie. Um, or, you know, in this case, in this book. And it was very disappointing every time a female character, even, you know, the, the horse, um, 
I think we have we have Huin and we have um, Erebus and I mean Erebus is kind of cool, but it just there's no there's no moment for her where you get to really see who she is because there's I don't know as far as her personality goes I I feel like she's a very cool character with a lot of potential but you don't ever see that manifest like it's all as soon as Aslan attacks her <laughs> um you know there's there's not much beyond that other than becoming becoming the wife someday uh <laughs> You know, which, you know, maybe that does reflect reality a little bit. Um, yeah, so I guess even with uh, Susan, there's the section where she interacts with Shasta for the first time. And the way that she's written is very, there's so many women, woman cliches in there um, in her temperament. Um, and I do she's like very how, mothery and very like. Oh, yeah. you poor thing. Like a doting on him. And I, I like how they, how uh, Lucy was written about, but that was like for a whole two seconds. So there's really, there's not, there's not much as a woman to uh, grasp onto in the sense of even just having a character to attach yourself to. And that kind of makes me sad as a little kid uh, having to attach yourself to the, to the male character because there's not very... Uh, not a really strong female presence in here, which you know shows it was written by a man. It feels like <laughs> uh, a man's perception of of a woman's role in the world, especially uh, yeah. when this book was written um, written from a Christian perspective. But yeah, and I think you know you can break down. I haven't thought super deeply about it, but you can break down more of the situational. Uh, the circumstances that are coming up in the book and break some of those down, which I have a feeling that's that's more of what what you are having strong feelings about. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's uh, there's just a lot here in this book where. <laughs> no, yeah, I want to. I'm centering myself. <laughs> no, we have a lot of, and you mentioned the way that Lucy is is talked about in the last like two chapters. Where we have Prince Corin saying she's as good as a man, or at least as good as a boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like even in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we had these four characters presented, and we follow Lucy into the wardrobe. And Lucy is very much written as a completely different character than Susan, than Mrs. Beaver, than all of these women characters in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So going back to that book, we have the big bad villain yeah. is a woman. <laughs> we have, like, the first person to get into Narnia who has to convince her brothers and sisters to come, who's being doubted, who's strong in spite of that. Who, like, even in even in the way that they presented in the movies, I think, when she gets a gift from Santa Claus, and she's like, why did I just get a dagger instead of getting a bow like Susan or a sword like Peter? Like, I love her attitude. I love the way that she's written. But then you also just have, you know, like, Susan, who's just this pretty face who is about to cause an international incident because she rejected someone and that's sad to him. Um, it deflated his ego and he has to go to war and kidnap her back. But then she's not even there in the final battle to defend herself as she is a very skilled, like, 
archer. Like mm-hmm. she um she is not even there in the battle. Like it is it's Lucy going to her defense. Um so like from Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe where we have like one really strong female character who is forced out of battle um and placed in this role of healer mm-hmm. where she's forced to be a healer. Um because that's the acceptable role for a strong woman is to be the healer and to be to be forced into some kind of nurturing role. Then we have in this book where we have really got like besides Lucy and Susan three named female characters that ever interact with each other and that's Quinn, Erebus and then Lasarling. Mm-hmm. And oh, <laughs> And so when we have them presented, we have this idea of, like, the mother, the very maternal Hwin, who is there to, to step in and keep Erevis from killing herself. But other than that, she's very demure. She gets run over by Brie. She's, you know, Brie, uh, oh, she's such great breeding. She's a good yeah. blood mare. <laughs> but other than that, like, she is well-bred, and she is maternal to Erevis. But other than that... Her idea that she's demure and that she's sub- submitting to anyone else in the group is very much part of her character. And then she, when she doesn't do that and she voices her opinion and says, no, we should keep going, Brie is like, no, you're wrong. And everyone goes <laughs> with Brie on that because up to this point, she's been silent. And so they completely ignore Wins like, no, we really need to keep going urging and at that point they make the decision that causes Aslan to have to chase them into the hermit um apparently um and so when as this kind of maternal demure character then you know gets chased by a lion literally because she couldn't convince anyone else to listen to her and then we have Erebus who is strong and like willful and powerful but also snooty and judgmental and wants to interact with Bree because he's clearly well-bred and of uh, like high esteem but not Shasta because he's some slave boy and then she has to disguise herself as a slave girl and then oh no like you know her decisions like went so (laughs) When we have Shasta and um, Erevis telling their stories, and Erevis tells her story about um, poisoning her maid, Shasta says, what happened to her? And Erevis is like, she probably got beaten. What does it matter? And, and Shasta's response is like, that wasn't a very kind thing to do. Like, how, like and I forgot about that scene completely until mm. um, you actually have... Aslan talking to Erebus about why he scratched her and that it was like for her to feel the pain that her maid had felt. And I think that that previous scene with Shasta didn't have enough weight to it. Sorry, I've gotten off topic now. But um, (laughs) we definitely have Shasta showing more human concern for the maid because Erebus is so like snooty and high class and like people are objects and I'm not, you know, she's, she's very, very opposite of Quinn as far as like this maternal concept. 
she's brash and she's dressed up in her brother's armor that she stole and stuff like that. And she's almost this kind of strong Lucy figure. But then she also is so snooty and so looking down her nose at Shasta and everything. Like, it makes you not want to mm-hmm. relate to her as a character because she is such a, like... Oh, you... What does it matter if the slave got beat? Like, I was hoping I, my- <laughs> to see see more of an arc with her. I was yeah. hoping to see that, like, come around. But it just kind of gets tidied up in the last last few pages with a quick little bow you know um because i re- i really like her character and i i like that she's very flawed and that you don't want to like her um so i was hoping to see kind of a return on that and even maybe hoping to to see her as part of the battle like i was i was hoping um kind of i don't i don't know i didn't ever read the 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 um lord of the rings books but I I love the movies and I was hoping for like you know at the end of the third movie um how Eowyn has her I am no man moment like I was really wanting one of those moments for Erebus and I was I was super bummed that it didn't happen because I think she's a great character and I I do like I like the fact that she's snooty because um it gives more of an opportunity for an arc yeah but she's a woman so it doesn't matter (laughs) But I would argue that she does have one of the strongest arcs of any of the characters because we have Brie being like, oh no, am I going to fit it in Narnia? And then we never get a resolution to that. Like, we never get any kind Mm. of, like, he fits in well enough to get married at some point. But other than that, like, we have no idea about Brie's story. Shasta has this kind of rags to riches idea, but even as Chris said, it's bookended by this submission Mm. to either Arshish, his father, figure slave owner or to the law of Arkenland where he is going to have to become king and I have to learn how to dance and I have to learn <laughs> how to fight and I have to learn all these things and I'm going to be educated. <laughs> Terrible. And Quinn who just kind of goes from being demure to being not listened to to still being demure like there's nothing that changes for Quinn at all. Erebus is the one who has a most distinct like actual facing of herself where she has that moment where she says, oh, and Shasta was the best of us. Mm, like, yeah. like he tur- he jumped off the horse and ran to chase down a lion that was attacking me to defend me. And all I saw him as was a slave boy. And so, like, we do have a radical shift for her from being someone who devalues human life to being someone who actually can value someone for the merit that they might actually have inherently. But then it's all, like... Oh, but he was a king after all, so he it was really just in his blood. You know? Marriage like, material. Yes. And um <laughs> and we talked about in um because you listened to the audiobook, you didn't have any of the artwork, but in the original publications, Pauline Baines was the um was the person who did the artwork, and so there's like little oh, sketchy cool. drawings in the books. And in that scene, we have this drawing, which is the revelation of Prince Kor coming in. Oh, cool. And Erebus seeing him. And so it's this view of Erebus from the back, and you can see this kind of surprise and attraction even in her posture. Mm-hmm. And then you just see Prince Kor, Shasta, standing there looking at her. You don't get a much facial expression <laughs> there, but like 
all of the reaction is in her posture where it's just like, oh, yeah, and he's a prince too. You know, like no wonder he was the best of us kind of thing where it's yeah. just like, oh, like all that progress you made towards seeing a person's inherent value just got lost because, oh, he was a prince anyway. Mm-hmm. So obviously he had noble blood in him. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Anyway, sorry. And yeah. then Lasarline, who is just oh, you she's know. the best. I I think in uh, <laughs> I was like she's written like a gay man, like a very flamboyant gay man. I love it. And yes. and the the audiobook is great. I don't know if you guys have listened to it, but he the 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 guy reading it very much uh, voiced her like a very flamboyant gay man. That's all I could hear. Uh, <laughs> so. Oh, I mean, awesome. I think I, I loved I loved her character in a I- ironic way. <laughs> well, and her character is living her best life, and she's doing you know like she is absolutely she has gotten what she wanted. Like, and I think that like of all of the female characters, she has you know there is a pro- problematic nature to like the cultural role that she has to fill. But she wanted that. Like, and I absolutely am like, go for it, girl. You got what you wanted and you're going to go be a goofball and you're going to get this reputation as a prankster and, and have all of these fun jokes. And like, I, I like when I first read it, I was like, oh, Lasarlene is just this like ideal character and this kind of weird Middle Eastern like role that is forced it but also at the same time she's loving what she has accomplished in her life and Mm -hmm. she's like 15 years old at the most (laughs) like this is someone who is this like teenage bride who got everything that she wanted out of that deal for her like she's she's living in Tashban she's getting to ride around in a litter she's she's got the attention of everybody and she's got everything that she wants and that's not like That's not a problem. Her character and her, like, the fact that Erebus couldn't help but look at her to see how great of a person she had become is what allows Erebus to get into the castle to find out the key piece of information that Rabidash is going to go attack Arkenland, is going to give that information to Shasta to give it to King Loon to defend them and keep everyone alive. Like... The fact that Lasarlene existed as this person who wanted attention so much is what allowed all of these things to happen at all. Hmm. So I'm like, She's I the, think the that real she, hero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I think, I think to an extent, there's this, you know, there's this idea that like, oh, women who just want to get married, like that's a problem. But also, like, she did what she wanted to do, and she is the key that unlocks everything else that happens in the plot in this story. And I actually, like, really appreciate Lasarlene as both a character, but also, like, she's she's really just vibing with her city life, and she's loving it, and she is allowing plot to happen that wouldn't have been able to happen without her. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, I, I mean, didn't even, I didn't even think about that. Well, and we have this running joke that, like, Tumnus as a character is, like, <laughs> Have you seen Game of Thrones or read any of Game of Thrones? Uh, I I think I made it four seasons into oh. the show. So the character of Littlefinger? I don't remember who that is. <laughs> okay. So we have this running joke that Mr. Tumnus is actually the power between behind the throne in mm. Narnia. That, like, he's the one who brings Lucy in and then, like, they all, like, 
have this whole role in the castle where he's still an advisor to them. And so we're like children from ages 8 to 13 ruling an entire nation. And Tumnus is really like the power behind them. (laughs) And so we've got this kind of like, this is our baseless speculation. Like this is our theory about Narnia and the powers that are actually at play. So he's like like the Charlie to the angels kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. So we have him very much just like, oh, he's like behind the scenes moving things. He's the puppet master of the Narnian throne. And makes um, sense. You got to keep an eye on those fawns. (laughs) Yes. And we had Steve point out that he wants this like end credit scene on Narnia. Like (laughs) at the end of it, he wants an end credit scene where you just see Tumnus and Lasaraline, like just like looking out at a a red sunset, you know, like (laughs) where it's like the two of them are actually like the puppet masters causing all of these things to happen where Lasaraline like actually on purpose snuck them into the Tisrock's room to hear all of this or whatever, like. Just giving her so much more credit Mm -hmm. than the book gives her um, as just kind of like a mover of entire nations, you Mm know? I don't know. It's fun. It's a fun way to look at her character. That would be... Are we right? We'll get there. (laughs) That would be uh, an ultimate feminist move for this this book, at least. Yeah. Speaking of which, uh, Rachel, I know you said you don't read a whole ton of fiction, but uh, is there... Are there any standout, like female characters characters or protagonists that like you really like love or identify with or like because we'd like to endlessly compare these books to other books so like do you have one that comes to mind is like this is a well-written female character of some kind um oh geez i the last fiction book that i read was this the uh, girl with the dragon tattoo series um and i i really i like Elizabeth uh, Salander for being just completely odd and quirky and I always look for in any in any female character whether it's a movie or a book whatever um, I'm always looking for something that or someone who embodies um, vulnerability and strength like I'm not impenetrable but I also don't give up um, so I I really like her character, particularly in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, because I didn't really like the other two books as much. It felt like they were kind of... Yeah, so what was... Can you repeat your question again? Comparing oh, this, it to uh, this book? Yeah, I was just looking for, like, good examples of, like, female protagonists, because, like, I feel like it's helpful to have something that's like, oh, what are we measuring this against? Because I feel like uh, a lot of... I haven't, I, I don't know, I haven't read anything in the past few years, specifically from, like, YA fiction or whatnot, but, you know, five, ten years ago, there was this huge, huge trend of, like, oh, we have tons of YA fiction with, like, strong female protagonists who are all exactly the same character, mm. and so I feel like that's that's not necessarily a place to look for, like, inspiration when you're, like, your Katniss Everdeen's and, and what have you, and what's the one from, uh, gosh, the one you were reading with the, with the little factions of people... And like the oh, I, the divergent is that what yeah, it was? Tris. Yeah, Tress. Um, divergent. Yeah, I didn't and like. I didn't read any of those books, but I I think I'm not so interested in the details of the character as much as someone who genuinely seems to care about other people, and whatever the details of the character, 
I, I like for a female, I, I think something that is really beautiful about femininity, and, and maybe this isn't just feminine, but like there is such a gentleness and a vulnerability um, that that we can have that ultimately be, because of um, this great capacity for gentleness and empathy like can manifest in such a great strength and determination um and and i don't know if that's just something i personally really enjoy about a female protagonist but i like seeing that like my favorite female character in like a in a movie i love uh ripley from alien ripley to like oh my goodness i absolutely love her because she's very vulnerable but she does not there's moments where she's almost completely screwed but she's smart she uses her intellect as a weapon and she doesn't hide or mask her fear um or any of her flaws or weaknesses and i think ultimately that that makes her completely awesome and rad and then she gets to use a really cool back suit so you know that's a plus (laughs) uh kristen uh i we haven't gotten to this book yet is it I don't know. It's not the next one. It's the one after that or something with uh, this character you keep talking about, Jill Poole, who, like you've mentioned many, many times. She's in the Silver Chair. Silver Chair. Okay, so we have um, a little while before we get there. Yeah, so it's not the next book, and it's not the book after that. It's the book after that. Yeah. Um, And Jill is very much the, I want to say, the best written female character of C.S. Lewis's books. Oh, interesting. Uh-huh. And Period. Why? Um, she, Jill is very much a character who has no idea what's going on when she ends up in Narnia. She doesn't want to be there. She is given by Aslan on, like, at the very beginning, a task where he tells her, uh, like, he gives her a task and she's like, don't know who you are, don't know where I am, don't know what's going on, don't care, and, like... (laughs) doesn't do what Aslan tells her to do and ends up other people have problems because she's not doing what she was told to do and has uh, she just has a great character where she's not a puppet of Aslan and she's she is her own character she is her own role she has her own arc she's powerful she's got you know she she affects the story for good and for bad like I don't know. She's she's a mover in the story. Hmm. And like for a lot of the story, it is following her as she is trying to figure out what's going on as she fell into Narnia. Like unlike Lucy, who comes into Narnia is like, it's snowing and I want some toast with this fawn that I just met by the lamppost because I'm eight years old and you look normal. (laughs) Um, But Jill is very much just like. Okay, you're a lion and you're talking to me. I clearly fell and hit my head and I don't need to pay attention to what you're saying. Like, <laughs> all right, I'm just going to keep walking until I wake up. You know, like, she's very much this kind of character who's much more, like, grounded in who she is and just like, nope, I'm just going to keep going until I wake up because none of this is real. That's so great. I, yeah. I'm going to have to keep reading she's... along with you guys so I'm following the podcast so I can... <laughs> follow up with that yeah jill is yeah jill's my favorite uh like i i really do love jill and that's why the silver chair is probably my favorite of the books and like yeah she's given a whole list of like 
things that they're supposed to do. And she's just like, no idea what she said. I don't care. You know, like, I don't know. Not like in a ditzy way, but in a like, no, this is logically unsound. And I'm not going to listen to this, like, lion talking to me because lions don't talk. So. I can't see why you identify with this character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say we we tend to look for uh, bits of ourselves and the characters that we identify with. I'm like, hmm, so it's like the the perfect mix of anarchy and chaos, like very, yes. very uh, nihilistic and Christiany. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Uh. <laughs> But yeah, no, I, I, and that's me obviously remembering the parts of her that I like the best. You know, I haven't read that book for. You like the, the defiance. 15 years. Yeah. That as a woman, she doesn't do what she's told she ought to do. Yeah. And she's not running errands for Aslan. She's, you know, she's just trying to, trying to stay alive and trying to figure out what's going on. So. She's not just going to trust the first, you know, loud voice that yells at her. <laughs> uh, Don't so. get caught by the giants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, was there something else you wanted to dive into? Rachel, did you have any other thoughts on the women characters? I kind of went on for a while. Oh, no. Um, I, yeah, I think as far as this book goes, not my favorite representation of female characters. Um I really wanted to like Erevis more. Um, I did get a good laugh at the end w- when uh, he, the, he wraps it up saying that they got married to continue their arguments more conveniently. Um, <laughs> yeah. I like I literally laughed out loud at that part, and I I, I went back and re-listened to it <laughs> a couple times because I liked it so much. Uh, but yeah, as far as female characters, yeah, I don't think I have much else to say i'm just i'm bummed i didn't get my i am no man moment because i really i live for those yeah, yeah. we'll throw that in when we uh, rewrite the book <laughs> it's, uh, it's something we've been talking about forever with our uh currently we have a patreon that we don't actually offer anything for uh but the the project that i really want to do is we want to rewrite lion the witch in the wardrobe as a uh, an adult novel Ooh. and like the the style of something like Game of Thrones, where it's all like political intrigue and, and we uh, get that Lasarda lean this moment. Yeah. So, if we ever do that, that would be fascinating. <laughs> I'm I'm all on board. There you go. We have support for this. There we go. <laughs> I pledge five dollars. <laughs> Sweet. I will. Uh, I'll buy your Starbucks to fuel you through some <laughs> intense writing sessions. There we Sweet. go. All right, so um, Rachel, we throughout the whole series have kind of every every chapter we give it like a summary, closing thoughts, our own just kind of arguments about pros and cons. And Chris will rate the chapter on like a one to five scale. I don't want to short you on that. So if you want to put in any closing thoughts or or just kind of summing up your thoughts on the book as a whole. And if you want to rate it, you can. I always uh, abstain from rating chapters um, and the book as a whole and like I'll undermine Chris's intent. But uh, if you want to rate the book. I don't know, you uh, said on your, a one to five scale? Yeah. Uh, I think maybe like a three. Like it's a, it's a fun adventure story. I don't think like it did not hit any sweet spots for me. Like 
Like at any point I could have stopped listening or stopped reading and I wouldn't have lost any sleep over it, you know? But it wasn't like, it w- it wasn't like unpleasant listening to it or, if, you know, if I were, if I had the attention span to just sit and read it. Um, so yeah, I don't think it was an awful book. I, I think C.S. Lewis is a brilliant writer. I love the way that he writes and describes situations and granted, I don't have a lot of fiction experience. I usually, if I'm going to sit down and read something, I'm doing like theology books or neuroscience or weird stuff like that, surprisingly as a creative person. Um, but I, I do like a lot of the writing style. It's very um, image evoking and it was very easy to put myself in the story. So I would say like a three. I was like, yeah, that was, yeah, was fine. That was good. Yeah. I'm going to have to listen to one of, at least one of the books because C.S. Lewis did a lot of writing specifically for audio where he did radio broadcasts and things like that, uh, especially during World War II. Hmm where he did a lot of just like audio and that's where a lot of the nation came to know him in England, not primarily as a theologian, but primarily as someone who did radio broadcasts during World War II. Yeah, to and this day, like apparently if you like talk to people in England about who C.S. Lewis is, they'll be like, oh, the old man who told stories on the radio. Like hmm. that's just... As opposed to yeah. that theologian, that Christians love. Yeah. Um, and so a, a few of his theology books are actually just transcripts of radio broadcasts that have then been edited later hmm. um, into book format. So I'd be interested to hear his fiction as opposed to read his fiction, because for me reading it, those moments where Aslan or Aslan, where Lewis jumps in and says, well, you wouldn't know anything about calamine food, but I can assure you it was the best, you know, or whatever. Where, like, C.S. Lewis just kind of butts in, like, the Deadpool of the, of the book. <laughs> where he's just like, oh, yes. And, like, it was fatal, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. There there um, are quite a few moments, and it, it is very um, notable in listening to it in audio form. Because um, no, it's really jarring reading it. <laughs> it. It's just as jarring. I was, I was thinking, like, oh, wow, he's, like, breaking the fourth wall. Like, this is pretty... Uh, yeah, it was it was noticeable. That was something I forgot to bring up. That I'm like, is this is this a, a normal part of the tone? And I do. Yeah. I I think I like I like that. It does take you out of the story a bit, but I think maybe that's a that's an intention. Yeah, I don't know. I don't like it because it does take me out mm-hmm. of the story, and also like the pace that I'm reading the books at is one chapter a week. Like I'm reading a chapter tearing it apart on the podcast, reading a chapter, tearing it apart. on. So, like, I feel like I need to just sit down and listen to the whole audiobook all at once because I lose out on, like, those moments where you were talking about where you have an emotional response to something because I don't get caught up in the story and I'm just like, oh, and, well, there's C.S. Lewis button in again. You know, like, mm-hmm. I'm completely lost um, an appreciation for the flow of the story mm-hmm. to to a certain extent. So I feel like it's something that I need to start adding in where I'm just like, all right, I'm going to listen to this story now or something like that and just take take four hours and listen to it while playing Minecraft or something. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Rachel. I don't want to take any more of your time, but I would love it if you wanted to um, plug anything, share. I know you've got some exciting things coming up in the next, like, four weeks or so here in October you've got some exciting stuff if you want to plug that or talk about it oh yeah thank um, you let our let our audience know where they can find you on social media and what you're up to 
Thank you. Oh, yeah. Um, cool. Well, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you inviting me to do this. I, uh, I have always wanted to do a podcast, and uh, I really enjoyed the book, and I really enjoy you guys as people. So, um, Yay. it's been it's Somebody been it's been <laughs> lovely. Um, yeah, and I so I'm a musician. My day job, I teach music, and my job every other minute of the day is. <laughs> um just making music and and writing music and so i've been working on an album for two years it's a pretty weird i call it sci-fi rock weird album um for my band river ripley it's about to come out in october um and it's pretty fun and adventurous like i actually really like it and i usually hate myself and my music so i think that says something so i'm uh, most active on instagram and that's just river as in a stream and ripley as in Ripley, your girl on Alien, um, <laughs> and that it—that's actually the band name comes from River um, from Firefly. If you guys are familiar, yeah. and Ripley, two favorite female sci-fi characters, um, and that's very much the spirit of the album. So that comes out, um, all things going well, October first, and it will be streamable on all platforms. The album's called Quantum Myopic. And it is very serendipitous Whoa. that it's coming out around this time because I just decided to release it last week. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, thank thank you for letting me plug that because I'm so like so stoked on it. Can't wait to hear it. So that's River Ripley on Instagram is where you're most active. You said yep. so you can follow Rachel there. And uh, Quantum Myopic is the album coming out. Should be when we air this episode. Should be about ten days away. Uh, sometime <laughs> in the next two weeks. So thank you so much, Rachel. Yeah. And it's been fun. Yeah. All right. We're finally done with this freaking book. finally <laughs> done with this book. I'm so ready for the next one. Yay. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, cool, guys. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. We Got appreciate it. your time. So thank you to our audience for listening. And we will see you next week with the first chapter of Prince Caspian. Prince Caspian. And of course, as always, you can find us online at Chronically Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, at Chronically Pod on Twitter, and you can email us at chronicallypodcast at gmail.com, or you can give us money at patreon.com slash chronicallypodcast and get absolutely nothing in return. So, uh, never mock a man, save when he is stronger than you, then as you please. And don't forget to brace your oats, I guess. <laughs> Bye. Um. So it's like the, <laughs> the perfect mix of anarchy and chaos. Like, very, very uh, nihilistic and christian <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just a little bit. Doesn't oh. <laughs> make any sense. It is, it is sound that exists. I am putting the sound into the universe. <laughs> I am not just vibrating my throat and not producing noise. In his blood, it's you know, marriage like... material. Yes. <laughs> Please continue. <laughs> I'll hand you the shovel. Keep going. <laughs>
and submission to the good. Yeah, desert people bad, white people good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was thinking. I was thinking that. Uh huh. <laughs> He's very sick. I'm over it now at this point. Like I woke up this morning, it was like, okay, I'm gonna go get donuts. <laughs> Tell me I'm not crazy. You're not crazy. You're putting in effort and you have nothing to show for it.